were, we knew we were surrounded by a hundred different um, militia groups um, with the, 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 both the local population, the truly local population, and the several hundred thousand internally displaced persons, all threatened on a daily basis with violence or, or experiencing violence. Um, and that, in a way, was, was, was more scary for me than, than actually, um, you know, seeing these guys hobble in on their makeshift crushes with, you know, infected gunshot wounds. Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking with Lachlan McIver on his recent book, Life and Death Decisions. So what I wanted to do really is speak to Lachlan um, about his memoirs that combines his personal journey um, together with the loss of his father, together with working in an international aid agency, uh, navigating war-torn countries, low-resource environments, and indeed the clinical experiences which went along with such. So what we'll examine is some of the overriding themes in Lachlan's book, look at his reflections, some of his salient revelations uh, of working in over 30 countries and regions. So Lachlan specializes in rural and remote medicine, tropical medicine and public health, and has a PhD in global health. He currently works as tropical diseases and planetary health advisor at the headquarters of Medicine Sans Frontieres in Geneva. So Lachlan's work, as I said before, has taken him to over 30 different countries, and he's published in 40 scientific articles and textbooks uh, along the way. Welcome, Lachlan, to the podcast. Hi, Owen. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. It's fantastic to uh, to have you, Lachlan. And we just wanted to dig into the book, actually, because it's a fantastic read, not only from a, a, a diversity of, uh, of experience, but also uh, candid sort of visceral accounts, really. And um, you open the book up with talking about sort of the death of your father. And, and, and it really does hit you hard. It's a real sort of psychological hook into the book. Could you, could you maybe just speak to that account and, and how sort of you frame death? Because death is almost a consistent theme throughout the book. Yeah, it sounds a bit gloomy, doesn't it? But I appreciate the, the kind words, Owen, and, and the fact that you've taken the time to, to read through the book. So as you know, it's called Life and Death Decisions, and the title uh, is intended to convey several layers of meaning. One is that, that it um, reflects the work that many of us do in our, in, our, in our daily jobs as health professionals around the world. It also reflects the, the trials and tribulations of communities in many parts of the world when they need to make life and death decisions about food and water and, and shelter and security. The title also reflects my own personal encounters with life and death decisions. Um, we'll come to the, the opening story about my father's death in a moment. But it all that, that personal experience of life and death decisions um, speaks to the very uh, close and ugly encounters I've had with, with severe depression, suicidality. And I also want the title to convey in a more subtle way the, the responsibilities that we all take in our daily lives um, for um, contributing to processes that, that, that cause uh, sort of harm or ill health to people around the world, when we contribute to, to carbon emissions and climate change, when we contribute to the rise of drug resistant infections, when we contribute to inequalities in the health system, we're all contributing to these problems, right? So that's what the title is intended to convey. That opening scene... Um, where I found my father 
uh, dead on the side of a dirt road um, when I was 16. He was 49, was obviously a very, um, uh, well, horrifying experience for me, a tragedy like that, completely unexpected. Um, it was a, a life-changing experience for, for me in that moment as well as subsequently with the impact that it had on, on our family. Um, and I might be taking a, a tiny bit of poetic license to say that, you know, it was in that moment that I decided to become a doctor, but it was definitely a, uh, you know, a very, very significant epiphany that I had when I was already a stage in my life, you know, when we're all, when we're 16, we're all kind of trying to figure out what we're going to do with our lives. Right. And I was sort of toying with the options of which one was medicine. And I think that moment, that instant, that tragedy launched me a long way down the road towards not only becoming a doctor, but becoming a doctor that was dedicated to try and improve the health of people in rural and remote areas like like where I'm from. So you mentioned in the book, actually, Lachlan, you know, you, you grew up uh, in and very much did your training in remote Australia uh, within a lot of indigenous groups, but also within um, uh, a lot of different rural uh, contexts. Could you maybe just speak to how that varied and or indeed prepared you for work in various places like sub-Saharan Africa, uh, PNG, South Pacific Islands, Indonesia, amongst other places? Yeah, so I was shocked to discover when I did my first, <clears throat> excuse me, when I did my first rural placements in medical school, um, not only did I want to go rural, I wanted to go the most remote you could go, the most extreme you could go. And in Australia, that means remote Indigenous communities. And, and they are other worlds. Um, you know, I have nothing but the greatest respect for, for Indigenous Australians and the rich history and, and culture um, that, they, that, they, that they bring to our country. Um, but in many communities, the conditions in which people are living are, are appalling. And it's, it's not overstating things to say that they are you know, conditions that one would have said belonged in the third world or in, in developing countries. We have in Australia some of the highest rates of um, diseases like syphilis and, tr and trachoma and rheumatic heart disease in the world, and that is almost exclusive to Indigenous communities. Indigenous Australians have, on average, a life expectancy seven to eight years less than non-Indigenous Australians, and that has improved only very slightly over the last couple of decades. And the most basic social environmental determinants of health, like food and nutrition, water sanitation, hygiene, shelter, as well as education, employment, um, uh, are, are far uh, worse in Indigenous communities in Australia than certainly than I expected. And I think that most Australians still realise. So the experience of doing medical student placements in those communities was illuminating. But, you know, with the greatest respect to medical students, um, you know, we're, we're of limited use in a clinical capacity. But then when I went, uh, it, it certainly um, uh, definitely gave me a taste for that kind of medicine and what doctors and other health professionals, nurses and Indigenous health workers do in those communities. So later on in my training, after I graduated and when I was on the way to becoming a rural journalist in Australia, spending time in those communities really made me feel like I was working in another country. In a, and a completely different environment. Um, and to answer the second part of your question, that actually prepared me pretty well for the developing world work that was to follow. I think that the experience of being in those communities in, with those sorts of determinants of health and health problems is one side of it. 
The other side of it is that in Australia, over the last couple of decades at least, we've had you know, quite a robust system for training rural generalist doctors to equip them with the skills and knowledge that we need to be able to you know, work alone and, and unsupervised and unsupported in, in remote communities. So that, that um, training um, serves us pretty well in, in places like Papua New Guinea or, or South Sudan, as it turns out. So Lachlan, just looking at um, a few different contexts that you that you marinate through, there's a real theme to security in the book and sort of escalation of security or absence of security, actually. And mm. I can really resonate with that from my humanitarian experience. Could you maybe just speak to how fragile, because within the book, you know, you denote uh, a narrow escape from kidnap in the Congo and uh, amongst other issues and, and, and just how quickly that can escalate. Could you maybe just speak to, to, to how you frame the fragility of security within the book and, and how you found that within humanitarian contexts? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I um, fully acknowledge, Owen, that many of our colleagues in the WEM community and those out doing humanitarian work would have experienced um, far more uh, security incidents than, than I have. But, yeah, it doesn't take many to um, uh, leave an impression, right? Um, and there's different types of insecurity too. Um, you know, I've been in situations where I haven't found in, in sort of um, – in danger from a sort of a physical threat point of view in terms of violence, but I have felt reasonably insecure in terms of um, just my own health. Like going to a disaster zone in, in Vanuatu after Cyclone Pam, um, when there's you know, basically no power or running water in the majority of the country, you realise how how reliant on you you are on on those kind of basic utilities to just keep yourself clean and 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 safe and fed. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was that trip where I, I took back a nasty dose of Shigella with me. I sort of, you know, febrile, delirious by the time I was on my way home. So that's, I don't know whether you, most people would consider that an insecure environment, but it definitely lacked some of the, the, the fundamentals that we, that we um, depend on to keep us safe and healthy. Now, right down the other end of this sort of security spectrum, um, there's there's actual actual war zones, right? So um, in the project I was in in South Sudan, this was a, a you know a very active civil war zone, um, and we saw lots of patients uh, coming in with particularly gunshot wounds. We were not allowed out of our compound except for very rare occasions, like doing retrievals in the in the boat. Um, and there was uh, you know curfews and evidence of the violence around us. That was that was an obvious form of violence. Then there's that more implied kind and and i find this the most sinister kind i don't know about you owen but in the democratic republic of the congo with that um incident you mentioned where my my colleagues in our project were um ambushed and kidnapped we were evacuated now we knew this was uh, well part civil war part cross-border war i mean the congo wars are ongoing yeah we were in this uh, location where we knew we were surrounded by a hundred different um, militia groups um, with the, 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 the both the local population, the truly local population, and the several hundred thousand internally displaced persons, all threatened on a daily basis with violence or, or experiencing violence. Um, and that, in a way, was 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 more scary for me than than actually, um, you know, seeing these guys hobble in on their makeshift crushes with you know infected gunshot wounds, because there was. Uh, 
evidence of it of it happening, but indirect evidence mostly un- until we had this you know, security scare and we were all evacuated. And that was probably the the um, event that took the greatest toll on me psychologically because you inevitably question what you would do if you were in that situation, right? What if had been me in the in the Land Cruiser? Like, how would have I reacted? In that situation, you know, guys with with AK forty seven stopping you and ambushing you, and you know, who knows what went down in that initial encounter. But these guys were hauled off into the mountains, and you know, presumably, uh, you know, ransom negotiations were undertaken. All the rest of it, you, you, you really question, you know, what would happen if that was you, and it's 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 impossible to know until you're in that situation. Right, I imagine a lot of our colleagues listening have had specific security training or come from military backgrounds, probably a lot more prepared for that kind of thing than than I was. But um, until you're faced with it, um, it's uh, it's it's something that you well certainly that I hadn't really thought about. But it, it carries with it a burden once you've once you've experienced that feeling of true danger, true physical insecurity. So it's, it's a it's a heavy thing. Absolutely, and there's there's a real sense of is your sense of over and covert security, and 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 the covert signs are the the fruition of of these people coming in with injuries and militia groups, but they and then their overt signs expressedly, you know, experiencing it yourself or to your colleagues. Uh, I can certainly bear testimony to that. Could you maybe speak to so something else which came out within the book, and I can testify to as well? Is this semblance of of self-reflection and mental health um i really felt quite isolated on some of my trips within the humanitarian context because you haven't got your community around you necessarily you haven't got your friends or family around you could you maybe speak to your mental health and the experiences with indeed depression and drinking that you denote within the book um from a from 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 your time on humanitarian missions yeah, I want to once again acknowledge that I'm sure many people listening to us will have had their own experiences with this. But my own personal observations were that um, have been that most of us get into this work because we enjoy it on some level, right? Yes, we're in it for the for the altruistic, uh, doing good, helping others side of it. But there's a selfishness that comes with that, I, I believe, and it's just up to us the extent to which we acknowledge that and. And, and admit it and, and, and sort of discuss it and negotiate it with our family or colleagues or bosses or whoever. So we, you know, I, I got into this field of work because I found it um, interesting and, quite frankly, exhilarating at times. And that adrenaline kick, though, can be addictive in its own right. Um, and again, it just depends where you are on the spectrum with this. I know plenty of people, I'm sure you do too, that really wouldn't survive outside that world they are they are so addicted to to the adrenaline to the disaster to the to the chaos that um that they that the sort of that the ordinary world doesn't seem real or tolerable to them i'm not necessarily one of those people but i can see how that would happen um and most of us that do this kind of work have you know sense of adventure appetite for risk and so we don't mind a bit of uh, a bit of action on the sidelines, right? The, the the blood on the boots, the the, the rat tat tat <laughs> echoing across the mountains, where sort of you know makes us feel alive, gives us a sense of purpose. But what it means is that there's there's payoffs, there's there's compromises and sacrifices. So we're away from home. Our our loved ones are not only missing us but worried about us often. 
we are hanging out with other pretty hardcore radical adrenaline junkies and they're not necessarily always good influences on us um, from a mental health perspective and everyone who's in that world is coping in their own way um, some of them you know meditation and journaling some of them through some pretty hardcore drinking I mean that one of the most famous books in our in our community is emergency sex and other desperate measures right so there's um there's plenty of ways to uh, let off steam in this in this community, and I think it's fair to say that that um, alcohol use or abuse is is one of the most common. There are more sinister ones as well, you know, the the sort of uh, substance abuse, sexual abuse, depression. Um, yeah, those all come with it to some extent. You were asking about my own experience with 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 mental health or or, or mental ill health. I'd say that has come not so much from the the work itself but from the circumstances that i found or put myself in i'd always consider myself someone who was pretty pretty relaxed and 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 you know pretty pretty chipper most of the time um and also felt that i was someone who had pretty pretty high level of capacity to manage things and just keep piling things on my plate which all went swimmingly until it came crashing down around my ears and a combination of yeah, sure. Some some professional pressures, work stress, but also money problems. Humanitarian work doesn't pay very well. Doesn't doesn't pay the bills very well. Um, social isolation is a big one, um, and then the the relationship issues that often accompany these kind of problems and this kind of work. That just for me was like this this maelstrom of 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 uh, of sort of stress um, that caused me to cave in on myself like a neutron star. It was an absolutely horrible experience. Um, and, you know, my, my heart goes out to anyone who is, is struggling with, with depression or other forms of, of, you know, psychological distress. You know, um, all I can say is, is, you know, speak up, speak out. There are people around who, who care about you um, and there is help available. We shouldn't feel alone. Loneliness is a poison, as I say in the book. I don't know if you remember that, that line, but... I really do believe that that phenomenon of social isolation, which can exist even if you're surrounded by people, if you feel lonely, that's a very dangerous thing. I can absolutely agree with that and uh, reflect on my own experience and having that sense of community. But as you said, actually, within context, it's it, it's just because it's community doesn't mean it's healthy community. So it's mm. it, it's actually trying to shape that community in an in an active way. Um, just just as a joiner to that, Lachlan, could could I maybe get you to speak to the off ramps or mitigation strategies for for your mental health that you used whilst you're away? Uh, just as sort of a, maybe more of a positive question on the back of uh, on the back of that. Yeah, well, once I eventually conceded that I wasn't bulletproof after all, <laughs> you know, after having naively assumed that I may have been, um, it, it's a humbling experience to to hit rock bottom in, in whatever form and need to claw your way back out again. So, you know, the lessons I've learned from 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 that you know, scrambling back out of the you know from the edge of the precipice, they're not um, they're not you know particularly um, you know, amazing revelations. Which most people listening would would uh, would know what the the keys are, but um, getting enough rest is important. So, you know, I found the really important things for me were um, sleeping as much as my body would let me, eating right, getting some exercise, avoiding the intoxicants, um, 
and and getting you know the, the the sort of expert support that I needed, particularly from my GP and psychologist. So that was when I was in crisis mode, right? I was really um, you know had had a full blown breakdown and needed to you know um, find and expend the the energy and sweat and blood and take advantage of all the love and support that I had around me to get out. But um, having you know, recovered from that episode and having had a you know a few close calls since then, because I don't think you ever quite shake it, the, you know, the, the black dog with depression, once it's looming over your shoulder, it never entirely goes away. But the off-ramps you mentioned, it mostly goes back to those those key points. So I'm a lot more conscious now of of where my limits are and when I feel like I'm nudging up against them and what the warning signs are. So particularly fatigue, um, um, you know, overwork, feeling out of shape physically because, you know, it's no big surprise that, you know, mind and body are connected. I'm more um, sensitive to, to when, when, the, when the, the, the tanks are running low in those departments and I've learned from hard experience and also my wife <laughs> does, isn't shy about reminding me about what I need to do when, when um, you know, those, those, those signs are, are starting to show. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have any other, um, uh, you know, really insightful um, tips or tricks to offer. Except, you know, I don't want to have a, too much of a spoiler alert for the book. But in life and death decisions, there is uh, a little detour through the 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 explosion in, in research into psychedelics as therapeutic tools for certain types of psychological and psychiatric disorders. So that's in there for anyone who's curious. Lachlan, a real theme throughout the book is um, around climate change and affecting uh, the, the climate change wherever you can, just from a personal ownership and indeed from a personal mitigation perspective. Could you maybe just speak to um, the theme? Because it really rings, it seems to ring true to your heart all the way to the end of the book and actually uh, accentuated at the end of the book. Yeah, so it's no secret that I'm um, a pretty passionate advocate for action against climate change, Owen. I've devoted uh, you know, a large part, possibly the majority of, of the last decade or so of my work to that topic. Um, it was characterised by the previous WHO Director General, Margaret, Margaret Chan, as the greatest global health challenge of the 21st century. Now, she, she wasn't wrong. <laughs> She's not stupid. Uh, we've just... That was the case until last few years, and we've all been distracted with this pandemic. And fair enough, you know, it's a it's a genuine global health catastrophe um, that was that was always coming, right? It was, it was, the pandemic was always coming. It was like the viral zoonosis from a spillover event, like most of them have been in human history, like most of them will be for the foreseeable future. But let's not get get lost in the forest of the pandemic just just the moment. Um, climate change hasn't gone away. Um, during the pandemic, and in fact, was likely one of the sort of factors contributing to. Well, it is generally speaking one of the factors that contribute to these zoonotic spillover events. Um, but climate change, uh, as a as a topic, has um, sort of increased exponentially in terms of the the evidence basis over the last few decades, and the the best evidence we have at present, which are deliberate underestimates is that at least a quarter of a million avoidable deaths are occurring every year due to climate change. That, that is it's a massive underestimate. WHO makes that very clear. 
And it's an underestimate because that only applies to four categories of climate-sensitive health risk. That's um, you know, malaria, diarrheal disease, natural disasters, and, and malnutrition. Um, there are many other categories of, of um, climate-sensitive um, diseases and health risks. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is the largest scientific collaboration in the world, they released their, their um, sixth assessment report in the last 12 months. And that, um, in summarising the evidence, made clear that around 70% of the burden of ill health around the world is linked to, to the environment and climate and is susceptible to climate change. So we, we ignore climate change at our peril. And in many places I've worked, particularly in, in, in the Pacific Islands, it's, it's not something they're ignoring at all. It's a, it's a daily existential um, issue. So the, the impacts are broad and far-reaching. They are not some sort of distant future abstract problem. They are present in the here and now, causing hundreds of thousands of avoidable deaths every year already. And the trajectory that we're on in terms of carbon emissions, uh, increasing temperatures, and all the effects that, that, that come with that. So altered weather patterns, uh, increasing frequency and severity of, of hydrometeorological disasters, not just the rising of the sea, but the warming and acidifying of the sea, um, intrusion of salt into freshwater aquifers and soil, uh, fishery loss, uh, decreased crop yields, water insecurity, food insecurity. All of this is contributing along with the uh, changing patterns of vectors that spread infectious diseases, along with the increasing impacts on non-communicable diseases, both bringing new ones and, more importantly, um, increasing the burden on people with existing NCDs and the mental health problems and the contributions to air pollution. All of that is, is, is you know, really this sort of almost overwhelming um, uh, health crisis that we are all facing, whether we see it or not, whether we like it or not. That is largely being ignored. So one of the it's being ignored, being ignored in terms of what the health impacts are of climate change and how urgent it is that we slow, halt, and reverse climate change itself. So after having spent years working on this topic for the World Health Organization in the Pacific, um, and having written a PhD on that topic and published a bunch of scientific papers, not only was I um, frustrated at the, at the lack of action on adaptation to try and reduce the impact of these of these health problems i was startled and alarmed and, and disturbed at the lack of general awareness of the fact that climate change was bringing health problems and they were really bad and happening now and getting worse so one of my main motivations for writing this book was to um was to uh Sort of, you know, shine a light on these problems. I know that's that's pretty cliche, but yeah, I think, um, as I hope you would have experienced in reading the book, having glimpses into the lived experience of you know people in remote islands of the Pacific, the health problems they face, the 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 contemporary reality of climate change, and what that means for their future loss of land, loss of livelihoods, population displacement, loss of sovereignty, identity, you know, apply that on a global scale and consider what it means for you know, climate-enforced migration, uh, food and water insecurity, conflict, uh, resource competition. It's, it's ugly, man. It's, it's ugly stuff. And while I don't want to just be a, a, you know, sort of a, a doomsayer, um, I wrote the book in what I 
hope and like to believe is a you know entertaining way um it is it is absolutely my intention that these heavy messages about serious health problems including about climate change are delivered via the book just whilst we're on the topic of climate change you know you do mention personal ownership within within climate change and you mentioned you know, carbon offset and you 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 make concerted efforts to not take flights where possible take the train or take other modes of transport whilst we're on the topic as an adjoining question i you know from personal experience i i found it um difficult to see a indigenous ownership of climate change when people were surviving day to day or week to week and just trying to provide food for their communities within Somalia or indeed within certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Could you maybe speak to how you saw the confluence of ownership at a local level uh, within indigenous groups just just to sort of take personal ownership in, in, in their ways? Yeah. Um, look, the best examples I have are, are from, again, from the Pacific Islands, because that's where I've you know, lived and worked for, for several years. And I'm, I'm an adopted member of the of the Beno tribe in East Coast, a spirit of Santa Vanuatu. And I spent a lot of time in, in the jungle there and know the community quite well. Um, there are plenty of examples of like contemporary adaptations, I, I would say, that, that where, where Indigenous people are, are very aware of how the climate is changing. I mean, no one is more aware. I mean, some, some farming communities, sure, but, um, you know, Indigenous people are far more connected to their environment, generally speaking, than, than non-Indigenous people. Um, and they uh, can have been able to observe very clearly what changes have been taking place over the last few decades. Um, and the most extreme examples of 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 those changes are in um, atoll communities like in Kiribati, Tuvalu, where the majority of the population live on these tiny little crescents of, of coral in the middle of the ocean, the maximum elevation of which is just two or three metres above sea level. The majority of the population live within a metre, you know, um, above sea level, and the sea is rising and the salt's going into the aquifers and the soil and the king tides are smashing them. And, um, that need, you know, I've, I've personally spoken to plenty of families and individuals who've needed to relocate twice in the space of three generations because of the rising seas. Um, that's a, that's a big problem. It's also a big problem if you uh, don't have food and if the, your traditional crops can't grow in these salty, um, acidic soils. So there is a, a really interesting um, program of research being undertaken in, in the Pacific Atoll countries, uh, which combines traditional knowledge um, around you know agriculture and um, and uh, I guess you know botany um, and and more uh, I guess sort of, you know modern or Western scientific approaches to um, to to agriculture to um, cultivate drought and salt resistant taro and cassava so these are these are staples for these communities but their food security is is decreasing and what that means is these communities are becoming more and more dependent on what crappy foods imported from overseas so energy dense nutrient poor imported garbage that's often dumped on these countries by other wealthier countries what does that mean uh, the communities in these countries are um, in experiencing absolutely skyrocketing rates of obesity, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, cancers, 
the Pacific Islands um, as a group have the highest rates of non-communicable diseases in the world. And when you look at what is happening with, with climate change and these effects on you know, food security, um, you can see how these factors are, are all linked and represent uh, a true emergency. The, it was, it's because of the Pacific that WHO declared a, um, you know, a, a global emergency for non-communicable diseases a few years ago. The Pacific declared it seven or eight years before then. Um, so, yeah, there are examples of traditional knowledge and Indigenous ownership contributing to um, understanding and solutions when it comes to climate change, including health impacts. But uh, there's, there's an absolute enormous mountain of work yet to be done. So on a bit of a lighter note, just within the book, there's some fascinating insights, Lachlan. You know, you, you really do combine some some um, quite deep and heavy knowledge from a uh, climate change perspective and research, but you also smatter it with these anecdotal stories of you know innovation and uh, resilience within low low resource settings. So you know, delivering babies with the, you know wearing a head torch and other innovation because because the need is there could you maybe speak to how flexible and innovative you have to be in some of these resource environments or low resource environments yeah happy to and look, i'm i'm 100 certain that i'm not the only person that has delivered a baby by a lot of a head torch um pretty pretty common practice for, for many of us i would imagine but i had not realized before i embarked on this this journey of rural and remote medicine and you know international humanitarian medicine just how essential a head torch would be um there are you know i've spent um nights on call even in in communities in australia and like the torres strait and then certainly in the pacific and and, and sub-saharan africa and elsewhere where it's i it's it's in my it's in my kit it's it's, it's in my bag next, next to my stethoscope because you never know um when you're going to need it and it's not just stomping around at night um you know picking your way to the emergency tent and trying to you know uh, not step in a puddle that's going to go up to your knees or not step on a venomous snake or not step on a landmine <laughs> these little things um or you know having a power failure or needing to examine a patient in a dark little mud hut somewhere um it's all it's all essential so yeah I've delivered babies by a head torch we've uh, taken out an appendix by by a head torch um of uh yeah treated snake bite by head torch uh very very useful bit of kit um but that that more generally that um ability or more accurately the need to be flexible and think on your feet and and make do with the resource that you have available is again is absolutely essential and it's not something that's you know unique to me or special about me um in papua new guinea um the first time i went i remember seeing this um this guy had fallen out of a coconut tree and and had um, you know he had these kind of bilateral tib fib fractures and you know they, they weren't able to to operate so there was no no open reduction internal fixations there was no x fixes it's just traction so he was lying you know semi recumbent on the bed with these you know five liter bottles of water attached to his attached via ropes to his ankles and that was him for uh, for a couple of months um in the in the in the post cyclone disaster response in, in cyclone Pam, we had such uh, such high rates of acute uh, acute sort of asthma or you know obstructive airways disease that we not only ran out of um, oxygen but we ran out of um, 
out of puffers and spaces for salbutamol. So we needed to chop up plastic bottles so that patients could, you know, use what puffers they had or we could find to, you know, to deliver the um, the bronchodilators, you know, effectively. Um, and yeah, there's there's plenty of examples of of people making do. I mean, there's there's yeah, you know, I've I've got textbooks on improvised medicine. You know, these are just uh, really kind of superficial, entry level, <laughs> amateur examples. I'm sure many of our listeners have got some more gnarly examples than the ones I've just shared. Lachlan, throughout the book, you, there's a real semblance of flexibility just within your own practice. You know, you say you you put in charge of twenty million dollar wash, so uh, water sanitation and hygiene uh, initiatives or projects. Could you maybe just speak to, as we're starting to come into land in the conversation, could you speak to just how flexible you have to be in your approach to to, to different subject domains, different, different speciality domains? Yeah, well, I would have never imagined, um, you know, training as a rural generalist in Australia. And, you know, I'm forced, first and foremost, just a humble rural doctor, right? Just fighting the good fight one patient at a time um but you know to 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 be to be frank i did also then go on and do a second round of specialty training as a public health physician and that definitely helped me um you know when i was sort of catapulted into these increasingly senior roles the world health organization um understand what i was supposed to do basically you know i was the acting uh acting head of emergency humanitarian action and environmental health for WHO in the South Pacific for, for 12 months or so. Um, and, you know, having a bit of experience with the organization that helped, um, having just uh, uh, a decent sense of how to be organized and prioritize and think on the fly helped. And also, you know, training helped. But again, go back to your fundamental point, I think being willing to roll up your sleeves and give anything a go and learn on the job is a is a is a core attribute that that many of us have and has certainly served me well and and is appreciated right um whether it's patients communities or or um colleagues and 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 uh, sort of senior you know senior folks in organizations they they appreciate that that flexibility and adaptability two quick examples um when I was given this very unexpected promotion to be this acting head of emergency humanitarian action environment health WHO, that was the the director who had sort of you know seen my boss depart, and I don't know whether he'd really thought through what the you know succession plan was supposed to be, but he just basically called me into his office and chatted about how I'd been doing, and you know patted me on the shoulder and told me learning by doing about five times, <laughs> you know off I went. But um, you know, he'd obviously been been you know observing um, how I'd been progressing and had enough faith in me that he thought I could step up into the role. And then, in a, in a weirdly similar way, when I was making the switch from WHO to Médecins Sans Frontières (MSF) here in Geneva, um, you know, I didn't think I'd have a, a hope in hell because I hadn't kind of come up through the ranks, done my time in the field with MSF. But the the, the medical director who who gave me my first job, um, you know, here at the uh, the international office in Geneva. It respected the time that I had spent in the field, in inverted commas, in, in the Pacific with WHO and with Rocket Ship, the, the international health NGO that I started with a few friends. But he also could see the value in what I had been working on in terms of um, environmental health and climate change and, and medical education and whatnot, and was willing to give me a chance to apply that to this whole other thorny mongrel problem of antimicrobial resistance he could see the parallels and you know, these are complex wicked problems they re- 
They have intersectoral implications. They require um, uh, interdisciplinary collaboration to solve. And so uh, the point I'm trying to get at is if you're willing to be a (laughs) non-specialist and if you are interested in a broad range of things and you are willing to just, you know, give it a crack, People will, will respect that and um, you'd be surprised what counts as valuable experience later in your career, um, even if it's in a sort of strictly unre- unrelated field. So Lachlan, could you maybe speak to Rocketship as an entity um, and indeed as a non-for-profit and just just maybe unpack it uh, for listeners, what you're trying to achieve and indeed its inception? Yeah, thanks, Owen. I appreciate you um, picking it up. So Rocketship is a, is a small international health nonprofit organization. It's an acronym, by the way. It stands for Remote Opportunities for Clinical Knowledge, Education, Training and Support for Health in the Pacific. It was born out of the realization that um, Pacific Island countries have far too health professionals, no surprise there, but they have really far too, too few doctors and the doctors that they have are far too concentrated in the, in the, in the urban centers particularly the capital cities. Again, this is not a phenomenon that's, that's unique to the Pacific, but it was pretty stark when I was you know, roaming around the region for a few years. And having come from or having been a product of the Australian system of training rural journalists, you know, there was a, the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine, you know, especially college with which I did my first round of training, was designed specifically to correct this, this, this imbalance, this maldistribution of doctors and to equip doctors, um, rural journalists, with the skills they need to provide care for communities alone and, and, and unsupported. So in, in chatting with my colleagues and you know, sort of senior health leaders around the Pacific, we realised that that example from Australia, um, which has parallels in other countries too, right, like New Zealand has the Division of Rural Hospital Medicine, and, you know, Canada has the, 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 the um, Society of um, Rural Physicians. There are examples of, of great training programs that, that trained doctors to do specifically that. And we realised that there was an opportunity to to adapt that model to the Pacific. We, in getting going, um, found ourselves sort of sucked a little bit into more just pure medical volunteerism, so sending doctors and nurses to areas of extreme workforce shortage, again, in inverted commas, which is basically everywhere. I mean, Vanuatu, my, my sort of second home and, and, and beloved adopted country, um, you know, um, usually only has doctors in two or three of its nine provinces, right? So there's typically four or five or six hospitals that have no doctors at all. And so we'd be sending doctors there to basically just be cannon fodder and same for nurses. And going back to our earlier discussion about security, we had a couple of close calls and we realised that we had overreached, we were overstretched and we needed to regroup and rethink and reposition ourselves. And that's when we realised that our our real... um, um, sort of role and, and, and niche and added value was in, su- in supporting the training of Pacific Island health professionals to become, um, you know, for the doctors, rural generalists. And so I'm very proud to say in the last few years, we've partnered with um, ministries of health or equivalent in, I think it's five different Pacific Island countries now. It's uh, Timor-Leste, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Tonga and Fiji to set up um, postgraduate training programs in family, community, rural hospital medicine. And in some of those countries, like the Kingdom of Tonga, for example, we've got onto our fourth cohort that are working towards their diploma and then onto their masters, which is a specialty equivalent qualification. 
and that to me is it's yeah it's definitely been one of the most rewarding um aspects of my career and if any of our listeners want to know more about rocket ship you can check it out online that's rocket-ship.org um, get involved uh, feel free to donate feel free to get in touch if you want to go and spend some time in the pacific it's a uh, it's uh it's an amazing part of the world the blue continent the, the jewel in the crown of the <laughs> planet earth i reckon so we'll put some links in the show notes to rocket ship as the non-for-profit we'll also put links to life and death decisions so the uh, the book and we'll make sure that uh, is denoted within the show notes so just to uh, come into land on the conversation Lachlan and you know it's really apparent that you've marinated through various ecosystems over 30 countries in various continents you know been dropped into some really difficult humanitarian contexts and some less so but could you maybe just speak to a few salient learning points about your experiences of transitioning into cultures and how how you can optimize that that transition because it's you know doing it in so many various contexts um i'd be keen to understand maybe some of your learnings from 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 transitioning into these these cultures yeah okay yeah interesting point to finish on Owen. um humanity is a shared experience right um those of us who are open of mind and heart and and um up for adventure and uh interested in 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 people and how the world works um there's an infinite amount out there to discover and if you approach those experiences, you know, based on my own humble experience, with an open mind and open heart and a sort of generous spirit, people will see that. Um, yeah, yeah, there's some horrible people out there, but people are mostly <laughs> mostly nice. Um, and and there is there is a shared experience of humanity, no matter how different or or exotic or or, or other um, some people may may appear. So yeah, I think recognizing that the, the fundamental humanity that we all share is 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 really key. And I think, by the way, as as health professionals, we have a very special, unique access to that. We have interactions with people at their most vulnerable, at their most intimate. Um, you know, I've personally treated, um, you know, uh, women and children from completely different countries when I would not usually be able to have any contact with them at all. Um, you know, if I was just a, you know, non-medical white dude, I've treated army and militia people that, again, I would not normally have any contact with at all. Um, but I've also had contact with people in the most extremely remote and, and difficult to reach locations. And again, I, I wouldn't have been there if I wasn't a doctor. So, yeah, we have a shared experience of humanity and being a health professional gives you unique access to the most intimate parts of, of the human experience. I think, um, there's a couple of practical tips, <laughs> uh, whatever you can do, um, linguistically speaking is going to be appreciated. So, you know, I grew up as a, as a, uh, you know, English speaking Aussie, <laughs> English only speaking Aussie. And so my, sort of language learning has been as an adult which is a lot bloody harder than as a kid right as i'm sure you all agree but people appreciate the effort even if it's just a few words it's not it's not hard you don't need to be you know a sort of linguistic genius just just make an effort um and humor definitely helps so again okay sure there's different senses of humor and, and uh you know some people are um you know more open to it than others but generally speaking i think if you 
if you smile and able to um, sort of interact with people in a, in a way that makes them feel at ease, makes them laugh, that'll that'll um, serve you well. Oh, and one more thing, um, learn people's names. Again, it's not hard. It's uh, like I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a brilliant doctor, but I remember people's names, nurses and patients, and and they they just they think it's amazing. I'm like, oh, that's you know, thank my mum. <laughs> I'll leave it leave it there. <laughs> Luckily, this and that's fantastic. I, I fundamentally believe in those points. Actually, I think people really notice when you make effort within their indigenous language, um, and in, indeed when you're kind back to them, or indeed kind as a, as, a, as a first mover in in any of the key interactions. But um, absolutely, and everything you said absolutely resonates. Luckily, I'd like to thank you for the last hour, just and for your reflections. Uh, the book is both entertaining, somber, visceral candid and uh, informative in all in equal measure so uh, we i do highly recommend it as a read to anyone who's considering uh, a life indeed in the adventure or a humanitarian context um because it's uh, truly informative so thank you for both writing it we'll we'll, we'll advertise it within the show notes and indeed for your time today it's been brilliant thanks so much for having me Owen. i had a great time appreciate it If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk taking, rule bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more. (laughs) 